thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I'm Vincent Aiello, and if my name does not sound familiar, well, that breaks my heart because I am the founder and host of this, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. But yeah, it's true. I have been MIA lately with the show being taken over by the Fights On series by our BVR Productions team and hosted by our friend Scott Chafian. That series is halfway over now, and it wraps up in early December. Anyway, as you may know, 2022 is our fifth year in podcasting, and it's been pretty much the same old show all five years. And we have some big changes coming up for the show in 2023. And I'll tell you more about that towards the end of this year. But in the meantime, we have an interview to clear off the shelves from our friend and occasional co-host, Ken Katz. As you may recall from his previous appearances, Ken, or primetime as I like to call him, as a former U.S. Air Force flight test engineer, enjoys exploring the more technical side of air combat. And on this episode, you'll hear all about the Benefield Anechoic Chamber at Edwards Air Force Base, California, where important electronic warfare testing takes place. Unfortunately, we ran out of spots to run this interview as a numbered show this year, so here it is as a bonus episode instead. Please enjoy it, as well as the rest of the Fights On series, and I will return in December to take us out for the rest of the year and introduce our new format in 2023. So we'll talk to you then. In the meantime, take it away, Ken. The effectiveness of their electronic warfare systems is a life-and-death concern for military air crews. The mission of the Benefield Anechoic Facility at Edwards Air Force Base is to test those systems so that air crews can rely on them in combat. I want to welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast Mario Dorado and Amarachi Egbuziam Chokis, two civilian members of the 772nd Test Squadron. Amarachi and Mario, welcome. Good day. Hi. Okay, well, let's start off with you two introducing yourself. Amarachi, why don't you go first? Please tell us about yourself, your education, your experience, and what's your current position. My name is Amarachi Bizium Chokis. I am an RF engineer at the 772nd Squadron, and I've been there for six years. So some of my education background is I started out with a bachelor's in electrical engineering from Fresno State, and then I went on to get my master's in systems engineering from Penn State. I was pretty much hired directly out of college to start working at the 772nd. But while I was in college, I had some experience working for the Department of Transportation, specifically Caltrans. And there I got to work on the ramps and signals and doing all of the coding and timing for that. Interesting. Mario, please tell us about your background and what you're doing now. All right. My name is Mario Dorado, and I am the technical advisor for the 772nd. So I have purview over the bath and other areas within the bath, which include like our dyads, which is our digital integrated air defense system, and our man cockpit simulators across the way. Well, when we think about the Benefield Anechoic Facility, or the bath as it's known, we're largely talking about electronic warfare. So let's start off with some basics. 
What is electronic warfare and how does it fit into military aviation? Well, the easiest way to explain electronic warfare is EW is the use of any RF signal in our electromagnetic spectrum to sense, protect our electronic attack. So that's a very fancy way of saying you can use anything that sends out a signal like radio, cell phones, radars, and a bunch of other systems to sense oncoming threats to make it seem like your aircraft or your system is not there to the threat or end up even attacking the threat. And how does it in the big picture fit into military aviation? In the big picture, how it fits in is that we use that electromagnetic spectrum that goes from low frequency radio waves to the microwaves, infrared, visible light, and all the way out to the gamma rays. We use the entire spectrum where we can go and execute a military mission. We use that spectrum to detect, interpret, control, and disrupt signals, such as radio, infrared, or radars, to protect military assets from potential threats. Let's talk about some specific kinds of equipment that you would typically find on an aircraft and understand, I mean, you've established some general principles about what electronic warfare is, but let's talk about some of the particular kinds of equipment and how they work and what they do. I'm thinking of things like radar warning receivers, jammers, tow decoys, chaff dispensers, probably some other things that you can think of. What are these things and how do they work and what do they do? Let's start off with, say, a a radar warning receiver. So a radar warning receiver senses the electromagnetic environment and it determines if there's any threats in the area of operation. If the signal is detected, the system will identify the threat using their onboard database based on the signal frequency, the pulse width and pulse repetition interval and other parametrics. Also, another system that typically are on board are jammers. These are electronic countermeasure systems that put out waveforms to deny, degrade, or deceive a threat radar. Typical jamming waveforms are noise or false targets. Another thing that they are putting on board are also decoys. Typically, they are toy decoy systems. They work by generating a target that has a larger radar cross-section than that of the aircraft towing the decoy. With a larger radar cross-section, the incoming missile is attracted to the decoy versus the aircraft. Also, another way to uh, deny or deceive is chaff, which consists of small fibers that reflect radar signals. Chaff is dispensed in large quantity from the aircraft that forms a cloud to obscure the aircraft from the threat radar. There are other systems, but those are the primary ones that we go in. Now, when we talk about these systems, let me make sure that we clarify this for our listeners. Those systems are all installed on the aircraft themselves. Am I correct? Yes, they are typically installed in the decoy sense. There are those that also uh, separate from the aircraft and fall to the ground. Are these uh, systems used against both threats from the ground, for example, say a surveillance radar, an early warning radar, or a surface-to-air missile system, as well as airborne threats? Yes, they are. And what are some of the, and again, I don't want to tread into classified territory, but how have these systems evolved over time? Because certainly systems like this existed close to 40 years ago when I was on active duty. So what's new and different about these systems to the extent that we can talk about them? How have they evolved? How they evolved was when the threat radars that are out there, they were very basic. They just had frequency, PRI, pulse width, very basic signals. But as time has progressed, they have become very complex. Because of that complexity, it has become harder and harder for jammers or radars, running receivers to track them and identify them. And deny them 
the capability of tracking or firing on our weapon systems. These kinds of systems that we've talked about, things like radar warning receivers, jammers, expendables, towed decoys, they've been around for a long time. They were certainly around when I was in the Air Force uh, 35 years ago. How have they evolved over time? Why do we need newer and better systems? Well, as the complexity of the threat systems have advanced, the waveforms that they are using are much more complex, which consume the resources of our radar warning receivers or our jammers so that they can deny the ability of those systems to track and shoot missiles at our aircraft. Would it be accurate to say that in view of the more sophisticated radars used by our opponents that these 30 and 40 year old systems that go back to my era just wouldn't work anymore against the modern level of threat. They still have some limited capability to do the initial tracking, which then they can hand off to more advanced systems out there. Let's talk about the Benefield Anechoic Facility or the BATH. Most generally, what is an anechoic chamber and how does it work? So the BATH itself is essentially an installed system test facility on It's a very large anechoic chamber where anechoic means that it's free from echo, where any RF testing can be completed for the electromagnetic spectrum. So when you bring in anything into an anechoic chamber, you're trying to make it think that it's in a free space environment. So it normally has a bunch of RAM or radiation absorbent material inside of it that will absorb all of the signals within that room and then send it back out at a much lower signal level, making it think that the signal that the aircraft is receiving is further away. Maybe it's 10 miles away or 100 feet away instead of being within 50 feet where the antenna is actually at. If you look at a picture of the bath, you see a big hangar and there's usually an airplane in the big hangar and there are all these wedges of radar-absorbing material that festoon the interior, that absorb it. And you talked about how that simulates free space because you're not getting reflection back off of the walls of the hangar. Mm -hmm. Why do we even need this anechoic chamber at all? Why couldn't we just, if we want to do things in free space, why don't we just put the airplane on the ramp and radiate into free space or put it in the air? and radiate in free space that way. Why do we have to put it indoors? Why not just skip the uh, intermediate step and just take it outdoors? There's a few reasons why testing in an anechoic facility is actually really beneficial. One of them being that it's actually an enclosed facility. So whatever signals that you are radiating within our chamber won't get out to the real world. And that's something that may not be possible to do on a ramp or while you're flying. Another reason why testing in an anechoic chamber is good is you have the ability to essentially experiment with the type of testing that you're doing. Since it is a lab-type environment, once you get your data from whatever test objective you're doing, you can see that data real-time, and then you can make changes as needed. And then this data can help you on a flight test so you know exactly what you need to test so you're not using too much time while you're flying and you can do more of the experimentation in an anechoic facility on the ground. So it sounds like the bath is a more controlled environment than actually testing outdoors because you don't have emissions from some source that you're not expecting. 
And when you radiate, people can't be listening that you might not necessarily want to have listen. Is that a pretty good summary of why we test in the bath as opposed to just testing outdoors? That is exactly right. The bath is an installed test facility, so you can do any testing you want without any interference from the outdoors, and you can control many aspects of your test objective. Another reason to test in the bath is that we do not have the issue with frequency management. If we were to do all the capabilities of the jammers outdoors, we would be jamming GPS, we would be jamming many other signals that are critical to the local area. We do not want to do that and get in violation of the SEC. Okay, that's interesting because the jammers are so powerful that you would have all sorts of adverse effects on everything from uh, people's radios to their garage door openers to civil air traffic. Yes, that is correct. Now, how big is the bath? What size airplane can you put inside of it? The bath is 264 feet by 250 feet by 70 feet tall. We can fit most aircraft in the Air Force arsenal except for the C-5. And that's just because the C-5's wingspan is too big to fit through our door, and its tail is too tall also. Now, why do we have to test the whole airplane? Why can't we just test the electronic warfare systems in a much smaller facility instead of needing a bath that can fit an entire aircraft? So you are very correct in the sense that you can test just the specific equipment in a lab setting, and then you can go directly to flight test and test it out flying. But testing in the bath allows you to figure out how that system will work with your other systems and the aircraft itself, while testing in the lab just tells you how that system works. It won't show you any comparisons or how it interacts with your radio or if you had a coffee pot in the aircraft. It's not going to show you what other system it affects, but testing in the bath, you will see how it actually works with the full aircraft, and that may or may not be something you want to find out while flying it in the air. So adding on to that, when you do it free space in the bath versus a direct inject in the lab, you are actually using the actual apertures that they are going to go fly with. And because of that, when those signals hit the body of the aircraft, they set up electrical currents on the skin of the aircraft, which may influence how well they receive or affect other systems that are on board that aircraft. So it is very critical to test the actual hardware that is going to be flown. When you say apertures, do you mean antennas? Are those two synonymous? Yes, they are. I've got a question from Fighter Pilot Podcast listener Scott Morris. Do the radar-absorbing material wedges that are fitted on the inside of the bath, do those have to be changed out depending on the frequencies being tested, or is it one size works for all frequencies? It's a yes and a no type of answer. We have many different types of RAM in our facility. We have RAM that looks like little tiles all the way up to the pyramidal shape that goes up to six feet. Each piece of RAM has its own specific frequency range that it works best in and different power levels for absorption to make a cleaner environment. With that being said, the only RAM that we change out for a test are the ones on the ground. We don't actually change out the ones on the walls because those are glued to the wall. It would be a very 
long process to take all the RAM down and put up new RAM for each test. Now, we've talked primarily about radar and then about countermeasures that are used against radar. Are there other things that can be tested in BAF, such as communications and GPS? Yeah, the BAF does a lot of different types of testing. So the ones you've mentioned, we do. We also do antenna pattern testing, installed and uninstalled testing of different equipment. We do EMIC, so EMI and EMC, and then also high-intensity radiated fields or HERF testing for RF susceptibility. You just use a lot of terms. I'd like to define some of those terms for our listeners. So what is an antenna pattern? An antenna pattern is basically the antenna's profile on an aircraft. So whatever antenna is on an aircraft, we can do an antenna pattern on it, and we can see its shape and how much coverage it'll supply to an aircraft or how pointed the beam width can be or how targeted it can be to see different aspects in the air. So would it be somewhat correct to think of this as almost like a nozzle for the radar waves where in some cases it goes out over a wide area, in some cases it squirts out over a very narrow area? Yes. Uh, Easy way that it was introduced to me when I first started working here was you can think of it kind of like a flashlight. So you have a flashlight and when you turn it to make a wider beam, it has a bigger coverage area, but it's much dimmer. So that would be like the gain being lower. But if you tighten the flashlight and it's much more pointy, it's a smaller coverage area, so you can't see as much, but it's much brighter in that one area. So that would be like a higher gain. And that is what we characterize at the bath. You use three terms, EMI, EMC, and HERF. Now, what do those three terms stand for and what do they mean? EMI is electromagnetic interference. EMC is electromagnetic compatibility and then HERF is the high-intensity radiated field. EMI and EMC is essentially testing for how different components on an aircraft can interfere with itself still. So whether that be your radar interfering with your navigation or vice versa. So when we do that type of testing, we uh, set up a matrix of source victims we will turn on, say, the radar, and then we will check all the other systems on the board, like the identification friend or foe, the radios, to determine if the radar is having effect on the performance of those systems, and also vice versa, where we will take a radio system and see if it is getting into the radar. So you said source and victim. So, for example, the source would be the thing that's causing the interference, and the victim would be the thing that's being interfered with? That is correct. The source could be the radar. And all the other systems on board could be the victims where you would go and check to see that all are performing as expected. It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, call sign Primetime. And my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. 
In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading the supersonic bone. Available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. Inside the bath, how do you simulate threats to the aircraft? So currently we use a system called the Combat Electron Magnetic Environment Simulator, or CSIM. And with this system, we can generate threats or even our own friendly electronic systems that are on board the aircraft. It works from 100 megahertz all the way up to 18 gigahertz. Within this system, we have 36 channels that are hosted in 26 carts. These carts are broken up into uh, three frequency bands. I mean, more like channels are broken up into three frequency bands, with the low band being from 100 megahertz to 2 gigahertz, the mid band from 2 gigahertz to 6 gigahertz, and also we have the high band that goes from 6 to 18 gigahertz. How are the responses from the aircraft systems to the threats measured? There are two ways that they are measured. First, if it's like a radar warning receiver, it's the ability for them to detect those signals at the correct range and with the correct parametrics. The other one is, are they identifying correctly the aircraft or the threat system, and are they responding with the right jamming waveforms as programmed? And then from that, if it's a jamming one, we measure on our side what is coming off the aircraft, and we can tell me, yes, it is the right, correct jamming technique or not. When a test is being run with an airplane in the bath, are there people inside the cockpit operating these systems? Yes. Typically, if it is a full aircraft, because we also do component level type testing also for certain customers, but when it's a full-up aircraft, we do need operators in the cockpit because we want the systems to be running operating as expected, and they can also be observed to see that their systems are uh, capturing the threats or working uh, as expected. Also, if we are doing those source victim type matrices, you know, they have to listen on the radios at the right frequency or transmit certain signals to perform the test. When an aircraft's being flight tested, there's a mission control center, and the mission control center works with the air crew. They control the tests. They control range assets. They are working data acquisition. Is there a similar control setup in the BAF? Yes, we have a similar setup in the BAF. We have a test control room. Within this test control room, we have about 26 stations to control the activities in the chamber. We have a test director slash test controller that actually sits down and runs the mission. He steps through all the test points, make sure the aircraft is on condition, make sure our measurement capabilities are on conditions before they actually run the test point. We also have a, a customer test conductor that is also works with the team. And ultimately when, after a test point is about to be completed, we ask the customer or the test director asks the customer if the test point is capturing the data, if they have enough data, and if they say yes, then we will terminate that test point and then proceed to the next one. And also within the test control room is where all our operators for the threat systems or the radio frequency measurement team sit and monitor the chamber. We also have the customer in there capturing their own data if they desire or if they also want to control their system from there, they can. Are there safety considerations for testing in BATH? And if there are, is there a safety review process like Edwards uses for flight tests? We have a slightly different safety process, but yes, we do do RF hazard analysis. 
in particular for those systems that emit radio signals. So we sit there and um, go through a process of asking the customer what the peak power of the system is, the frequencies they're going to operate, the duty cycle, and also any antenna gain. And that goes for the system under test, but also our systems. From that, we use the uh, Air Force Instruction 48109, which is the Electromagnetic Field Radiation Occupational and Environmental Health Program. Based on those system parametrics, we will determine the maximum permissible exposure limits for personnel and also for our RAM. Also, doing some calculations, we will determine how close we can get to the aircraft if those systems are radiating. But typically, we have a zero exposure policy so that we know what those limits are, but uh, we do not have our personnel in the chamber other than those in the cockpit, which should already be shielded because that's how the aircrafts are built. In the bath, can engines be run or rotor blades turn so you have the full dynamic experience of an aircraft? Unfortunately, we do not typically do that. There is only one experience in my career at the bath that we ever did that, and that was with a Reaper. They were having some EMI problems from their motors. We did get safety approval to run the engines once. Typically, the aircraft that do come into the chamber are defueled because of uh, hazards of us having a fuel leak in the chamber and, and us also radiating it and having the fuel catch on fire. Another question here from Fighter Pilot Podcast supporter Sean Jones. Does the bath exist more to validate computational models or are there genuine surprises that come up as you do exploratory testing? It is used more to surprise factor. Sometimes when you have mission data files, you believe you have it work, it works out in the lab. And then when you actually put it on the aircraft, things tend to work differently. Also, when you have that full system, if you're using your radar, sometimes you have flanking schemes where the radar will stop transmitting and allow your radar warning receiver to go out there and look for signals. Sometimes those don't match up or the radar warning receiver leads larger windows to be able to see those signals that may be out there. Let's look at this from an entire program level. You've got either a, a new aircraft or you've got an existing aircraft which has a modified or improved electronic warfare system. How does testing in the bath complement testing in the flight test? What are the advantages of each and how do you combine the best of both to get the most realistic and comprehensive testing? Testing the BAF fits very well into development of system prior to flight tests. It is also a valuable asset at any phase of the system lifecycle. We are very flexible. We can set up a more dense environment that are available in the ranges out there. We control the environment so we can give you different looks. We can adjust the parametrics of the threat radars on the fly. Ultimately, when you come to our uh, facility, we work with you to design your test, the range, and how your system requirements fit into our ability to collect data for you. As we've stated before, it's a secure, repeatable indoor range, and flight tests generally can't be replaced, but extensive collection of needed data for the system maturation of the install system makes BAF very uh, valuable in that aspect. Can you use BAF to investigate flight test anomalies? For example, you see something in flight and you say, what happened? Well, let's then try to recreate that test point in the more controlled environment of the bath. Yes, we can investigate anomalies that are found in flight tests. Depending on what those systems are, we are very well postured to do that. 
Well, I have a question from Sean Jones, who's a Fighter Pod podcast listener. How long is the waiting list to get into Bath? We're normally booked out for a few years, about two to three years, and that time does not go to waste. So normal contact with any prospective customer starts about one to two years out, and then we will start working on developing your objectives. Even though a lot of people kind of know of the bath, they don't always know everything that we're capable of. So there's always like a little learning curve, telling them what we can do, showing them all of our equipment and how we actually program and set up for a test. And that takes a few months for them fully understanding what the bath is capable of and then what they actually want to see and what data they want to get from there. After that, we normally have about a month of setup and the setup is probably our most crucial time. That is when we are moving our RAM to get it into place for your test. We are putting all the equipment in there. We are calibrating and probing the range to make sure that our environment is a quiet enough environment and that our equipment will not affect your system's data. So whatever data we give you will strictly be whatever the aircraft is putting out and our system won't have affected that. And then we get into the actual execution phase, which will, depending upon what they wanted to test, take anywhere from two weeks to four months. Is the U.S. Air Force the only user of the BATH, or do other military services or industry or other government agencies like NASA also use BATH? No. So the BATH is actually used by many different entities. So it is used by the military, other government agencies. We do foreign governments, private sector, meaning BMW, John Deere, and also kind of industry. So like the movie industry has used the BATH also. So some of the testing that I kind of alluded to was BMW has come in the bath and done some EMI testing before. And then we also had a Canadian test come in and test some of their helicopters out at our chamber. So one of the items under the commercial is that we also get direct commercial foreign military sales from the major companies that are out there that they will sell their products. You know, they're approved by the State Department, but they are direct sales to those nations. So that is considered also a commercial customer. How does bath testing occur in the life cycle of a vehicle? Where does it fit in? It can fit in at any portion where you have components that are, have a low technical level, say like a level five, six, where you're trying to figure out this system all the way up to the end of life cycle. If you are retrofitting the aircraft with new equipment. So a specific aircraft like the B-1B might be testing the BAF at multiple times over the course of its lifetime, not just once? That is correct. Can you give me an example, a case study of an aircraft that was being tested in BAF? What was the aircraft? What was being tested? How long did the test take? How was the aircraft actually installed in the BAF on this turntable and everything set up, kind of go through a, a soup to nuts description of a particular test program within the limits of classification, of course. So one interesting test that we did here was called a BI test, which is just stands for BATH Initiative Testing. And we actually did a type of cost of analysis versus on how we did the test in the chamber to how it would have been done in an open air range. 
So this test was about 344 hours of actual testing. And in the open air, it would have taken 86 range blocks and cost $17.2 million and taken 1.5 years to actually complete all of the testing that we did. And this is assuming that this aircraft or set would be able to fully claim the range and nobody else would be doing testing on it. But in the bath, this only took two months and only cost them about $1.2 million. And they were able to get it done with a bunch of flexibility and doing different reconfigurations throughout the test. So if my mental math is right, that sounds like a reduction of about 90% or maybe even a little bit more by using the bath. Yes. They were able to take this data with them and then more accurately focus what they wanted to do on the open air range instead of having to do the full suite of testing that they did in the bath. Now, what are the mechanics of installing an airplane for a test like this inside the bath? Because obviously you can't run the engines, so you need to have a source of electrical power. You need to have cooling. you got to have appropriate RAM placement so the radio waves aren't bouncing off the landing gear or the ground support equipment. What does it take to get an airplane into bath? It takes a very good group of people doing a lot of planning beforehand and a lot of RAM moving. So getting a test set up for the aircraft, we provide everything the aircraft will need just short of turning on the engines. So we have air cooling, PAO, hydraulic fluid, grounding lines, fiber, RF, whatever you will need to connect and control your aircraft. We either already have it or we'll make changes to make sure that it will be there on the day that your aircraft comes into our chamber. So after you set up all this equipment around the aircraft and you've presumably covered it in radar-absorbing materials so the radar waves aren't bouncing off the support equipment, how do you validate that, in fact, all this stuff is shielded so it's not affecting the results? All of that would be done before the aircraft even gets into our chamber. That is what we call probing our range. So Normally, a few weeks before the aircraft would roll in, we would probe our chamber. This basically means looking for any multipath or reflections. We do this at different points in the chamber to make sure that all the RAM placement is good. And with this type of testing, we can detect any shiny areas or any places that we're getting signals bouncing off of. We can lay down more RAM or build something up to help cover that. For When the aircraft is here, we do cover some of the landing gear or wheel bases, but a lot of the time, some testing, they actually want to see what those reflections are against the aircraft or their antennas on them. So adding on to that, uh, another way that we control the environment from stray signals and not is that all of our equipment are hosted in shielded racks. Essentially, there are Faraday cages for these equipment. We put them in there, we shut the doors, and that lowers the noise from those systems that could emit out into the chamber, making it much more quiet. Two terms here I'd like to explore. The first term is Faraday cage. What is a Faraday cage? A Faraday cage is a physics term, which basically means a big metal enclosed box. A Faraday cage is how you actually get the isolations from inside of the box to outside of the box, essentially. 
if we have a Faraday cage, what does it actually do to the radar waves and why is it important? It actually encapsulates all of the signals inside of that box. So when you have a signal inside of our chamber, you will not be able to read that signal outside of the chamber. So we have 100 dB or decibels of isolation, meaning that if you have a 10 watt signal inside of our chamber, the gain or the amplitude of that signal would be one one millionth of the power outside. You also use the word noise. Now, noise in common usage tends to mean sound, but I think you've got a different meaning here. What do you mean by noise? So electronic noise are just random RF signals out there. So if you were to go out to a grocery store or to the mall, and then a bunch of people are using their cell phones, maybe somebody is listening to a radio, there are cars driving by, all of these things put off RF signals, thus creating RF noise. So in our chamber, what we like to do is lower the noise floor. So we're getting rid of all of those spurious signals and just having a clean slate to just see what your aircraft is putting off. You've described a very elaborate operation at the bath between installing the aircraft, planning, conducting the tests, analyzing the data. How many people work at bath? We have a large cadre of people. It's about 100 people that work at the bath, and that is between the government personnel and also the contractors, the support contractors that help us uh, set up and run the equipment. Is that, in addition to that, when someone brings an airplane, are there also people from the aircraft test squadron who are involved with this order? They just hand it off to Bath and say, your airplane, please give it back to us when you're done. Those personnel are critical to the function because we do not know their system totally and completely. We have a good understanding, but they need to operate their systems and help us test their jet. The Bath or the Benefield Anechoic facility is named after someone, obviously with the name of Benefield. Can you uh, talk about the namesake of the Benefield Anechoic facility? Yeah. The bath was named after the former Lieutenant Colonel Tommy Douglas Benefield. He was a Rockwell test pilot for the B-1 Lancer and tragically died in 1984. And so the facility was named in his memory. Yes. So looking forward, what is the future of the bath? Is this a facility that the Air Force is going to be operating on a going forward basis? The bath will be continued to operate for years on coming on. We are always advancing the equipment that we use in the chamber because we go out there and query all future customers to determine how their systems are going to work and if we have the equipment to stimulate it or to measure any signals in the chamber. So Mario and Amarachi, what's in your future? We've talked about the future of the bath. What's in your future, do you think? I'm going to steal Mario's position. <laughs> As we get closer to retirement, that could be an opportunity. Uh, I will continue on with technical advisor for the near term. I have not decided what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> well, Mario Amarachi, thank you very much for sharing your expertise and experience about an important topic. Thank you for having us. Thank you. The views expressed are those of the participants and do not represent the official positions of the Department of Defense, its components, and its contractors.
Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.